Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Michael Klarman, author of The Framers' Coup, The Making of the United States Constitution. Michael Klarman, author of The Framers' Coup, why was it a coup? I think they wrote a constitution and they managed to get get the Constitution ratified, which isn't what most people at the time expected or really wanted them to do. Can you set the scene? What was going on? Why did they feel like they needed a Constitution? So there are two different sets of problems. One is the Articles of Confederation, which is kind of the pre-constitutional Constitution, isn't working very well. Congress doesn't have enough power. Congress is not given the authority to raise taxes. Congress doesn't have the authority to regulate foreign commerce. Congress can't even force the states to comply with treaties that Congress has negotiated. So one problem is they need to create a national government that's going to be more powerful, that can operate on citizens, that doesn't have to worry about states defying its will. But the other problem is there's a lot of stuff going on in the states that elite framers like Madison and Hamilton are almost distraught by. Uh, A majority of states have been passing debt relief laws, uh, issuing paper money, trying to help out farmers during the economic crisis of the mid-1780s. So the paper money is potentially inflationary. The debt of relief laws allow debtors to pay back their debts on easier terms. And people like Madison and Hamilton see this as as an assault on property rights. So they want to create a federal government that might be able to end those practices in the states. How'd they go from that to getting a convention together where there were enough people to to write it? And, And who was... Were there people who just thought the Articles of Confederation were great? There weren't a lot of people who thought the Articles were great. There were probably a few people, but I think most of the country agreed that the Articles needed reform. The question is, were you going to incrementally reform them by giving Congress taxing power and power over commerce, or were you going to radically overhaul the Articles? So this started, uh, they had a lot of trouble getting any changes made to the Articles. Under the Articles, you needed unanimous consent. And Congress had proposed amendments, for example, giving it the power to tax imports, and they couldn't get 13 states to approve. So they ended up, uh, there were some people in Virginia who thought they could circumvent the problem in Congress by having a convention. And they called this convention for Annapolis in the fall of 1786, and that convention would have a limited agenda. They were going to try to increase Congress's commercial powers. But the problem is almost nobody showed up. So 12 delegates from five states showed up. That wasn't enough to accomplish anything. And included in those 12 were Madison and Hamilton. And they decided to do something bold, which is rather than just giving up and going home and confessing defeat, they decided they would call for another convention with a potentially broader agenda to meet in Philadelphia in May of 1787. 
they had no particular reason to think that second convention would be any more successful than the first. And people like George Washington were actually thinking, maybe I won't bother going because there's no reason to think this will succeed. He was actually writing to some of his advisors, his former military aides, saying, is there any reason to think the Philadelphia Convention will work any better than the Annapolis Convention? Shays' Rebellion, this uprising by uh, debtor farmers in Massachusetts who tried to shut down courts rather than have their farms foreclosed upon, that actually alarmed a lot of people into supporting the idea of the Philadelphia Convention. And maybe that's why Washington decided to give it a shot. Where was the government meeting then? Uh, the federal government was meeting in New York. So they had been meeting in Philadelphia. They left Philadelphia in the summer of uh, 1783. Then they started alternating. Uh, they were in Annapolis, they were in uh, Trenton, they were in Princeton, but they moved to New York, uh, I think early in 1785, and they'd been meeting there for a couple of years. I don't think anybody thought New York would be a permanent capital. It's too far north, too far east for the states that are further south and increasingly populations moving west. People wouldn't want the national capital to be in such a distant place from them. Why'd they have this convention in Philadelphia? Uh, Probably just they decided to pick, so Annapolis was further away from the northern states. Maybe they thought, they chose Annapolis because they didn't want to be in a commercial center. They thought there was going to be a lot of distrust, and there were a lot of people who distrusted Philadelphia. So the capital had been in Philadelphia. Robert Morris, the guy who's known as the financier of the revolution, he was a big Philadelphia merchant, one of the wealthiest people in the country. He'd helped finance the Revolutionary War. There was a lot of distrust of Philadelphia, so people who thought that the commercial elite had it in for them, right? The debtor farmers in western regions would have been very suspicious, but I guess they decided, I don't, I don't know why they picked Philadelphia. I guess they thought Annapolis hadn't worked very well, so maybe we'll try something that's a little bit further north and a little more accessible to people. And it had been the capital, so maybe it, it was sort of, it occurred to them maybe Philadelphia would work out. Now, when, when the Constitution was finally written, uh, they, the conclusion was after nine states ratify this, it becomes the law? So they made this up. I mean, under the Articles, you needed all 13 yeah, how'd states. How did they get away with amending, with getting rid of the Articles with only nine states when to amend the Articles you needed unanimity? So this, is, this was fundamental to the success of their stra strategy, and they just made it up and hoped they'd get away with it. So when they called the Philadelphia Convention, when the Annapolis Convention issued a call to the state legislature saying appoint delegates to Philadelphia, it was very clear in the call that whatever the Philadelphia Convention suggested would have to go to Congress for approval and then would have to be ratified by all 13 states, which is what the Articles explicitly called for if you were going to amend the Articles. They spent four months in Philadelphia. They worked hard. They got the Constitution they wanted. And they knew they would never get unanimous consent. So in Article 7, they say nine states can ratify and put it into operation. Now, they couldn't bind any state but themselves. So eventually, if all 13 states were going to join, they had to join on their own. But there's a huge difference between saying nothing happens until all 13 states approve and saying nine states put it into operation and then the last four decide for themselves. The, the difference is those last four states are no longer deciding whether they like the Constitution better than the Articles. They're deciding, do you want to join this new union that's already in operation or not? And there's tremendous pressure on them to join. So if they don't, they're going to be cut out of federal military protection. They're going to be treated as foreign nations and subject to trade 
trade discrimination. They're not going to participate in the important decisions made in the first Congress, like deciding where the national capital is going to be. So in practice, once nine states ratified, the other four states had no choice but to go along, and that's why they ratified. Virginia and New York were the 10th and 11th states. They never would have approved, at least not without amendments coming beforehand, had it not been for this change. And they just got away with it. They just said, we'll make up this change and we'll hope nobody calls, calls us on it. Did the federal government in Washington, the, of the articles, under the articles, did they ever vote on the Constitution? So um, Congress is sitting in New York City. So the Constitution goes from Philadelphia to New York City. But in Article 7, they make it pretty clear, and in their letter of transmission, they're sending it to Congress with a request that Congress send it on to the states. They're not actually asking for Congress's approval, which again is inconsistent with the call for the convention, which said Congress is going to have to approve this. They weren't sure what Congress would do. Once it went to Congress, people like Madison, who had been at the Philadelphia Convention but was also a Virginia representative in Congress, uh, they tried to get Congress's approval, but the people who didn't like it actually wanted uh, Congress to have a full-scale debate. They wanted Congress to propose amendments. And at the end of the day, there was a kind of a compromise that Congress would neither approve nor disapprove, but it unanimously agreed to simply send it on to the states. That's, uh, you know, they would have liked Congress's endorsement, and they were actually hoping that people would read the resolution that Congress unanimously sent it on to the states. They were hoping people would misread that as an endorsement. Well, just, <clears throat> just for the record, for people who are not clear on it, how much time passed between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution? Uh, so the Declaration is July of 1776. <clears throat> the Philadelphia Convention meets from May to September of 1787. The ninth state to ratify is New Hampshire in June of 1788, and then the new government is up and running. There are elections uh, for electors for president and for Congress. State legislatures pick senators. The new government is up and running roughly March or April of 1789. So, so the convention gathers in Philadelphia in Independence Hall, and did they start with a blank sheet of paper, or, or did they start with somebody else's constitution and say, well, that's a, a kind of good form. Let's follow that. So uh, James Madison is the in indispensable player, and it's only because Madison sat down ahead of time and planned out an agenda. It's not that Madison is the most illustrious, most authoritative, most senior, most admired person. He's still fairly young. He's about 35, 36 years old. And there are people like George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, George Mason at the convention. They're all more senior. They're more famous. They're more well-regarded. But Madison sat down in advance, and Madison planned out an agenda. He diagnosed the problems in the Articles of Confederation. He studied the state constitutions. He diagnosed the problems in the state constitutions. He studied ancient confederacies, and he came up with a plan. Then he gathered the Virginia delegates. He told them to come early to Philadelphia. They got there a week or two before the convention started. They coordinated with another nationalist delegation, which was the, uh, the Pennsylvania delegation, all of whom happened to be from Philadelphia, so they were already there. And they agreed on a plan, which was introduced by the governor of Virginia, Edmund Randolph, and it was called the Virginia Plan. And it was a very nationalist document. It shifted power to the national level. And it was a very anti-populist document. They tried to create a government that was very distant from the people. And where you start out influences where you end up. And they started out with Madison's agenda as their, their starting point. You, you say in here, um, 
about the, uh, there was a, a movement that you had to be a landowner to vote, and Governor Morris was in favor of that, and John Dickinson and James Madison thought that freeholders would be the safest depositories of Republican lim liberty. And then you say Franklin was the aberrational delegate who opposed property qualifications on the merits. So they, they were not necessarily populists? They were anti-populists. There are some exceptions. There were some people in Philadelphia who didn't want the national government to be as distant from the people, but the dominant bent of the convention was very nationalist and very anti-populist. So both shift power to the national level and create distance between the people and the national government. The way in which you create distance is you have long terms in office, so they're not going back to the people for their endorsement very often. You use indirect elections, so senators are chosen by state legislatures, the president's chosen by a college of electors, which may or may not be popularly elected. State legislatures have discretion. Uh, they omitted various provisions that under state constitutions ensured a tight connection between representatives and constituents. So. Uh, instruction, which allows constituents literally to instruct their representatives on how to vote. They left that out of the Constitution. Mandatory rotation in office that would require uh, legislators periodically to rotate back and be ordinary citizens. They left that out of the Constitution. And recall, which would allow constituents or a state legislature to recall their representative during that person's term in office. Many state constitutions in the Articles of Confederation had those things, and they left that out. So they, did, they distrusted the people. They assumed the people weren't really qualified to run themselves. George Mason had a famous uh, statement at the convention that asking the people to elect their chief executive would be like referring a trial of colors to a blind man. They did not trust the people to choose their, elect, their uh, governing officials. So when the, the Constitution gathered um, the the um, officers, who, how did they decide how to structure it? I mean, who was in charge, how the debate went? They have to make up their own rules, but they have some precedent. I mean, their rules governing uh, state legislatures, how they operate, their rules governing the Articles under the Articles of Confederation, how Congress operates. They decided on a couple of important rules. So first of all, they all knew they would elect George Washington as the president of the convention. They agree on that pretty easily. Uh, one important decision they make is that every state delegation counts the same as every other. Uh, that sort of anticipates one of the main issues at the convention, which is in the national government, are you going to have apportionment based on population, or are you going to give every state the same one vote, which is how the Articles of Confederation worked. They decided, at least at the outset of the convention, that voting in the convention, each state would have the same, uh, would have the same power. The Pennsylvanians, and Pennsylvania was one of the largest states, they actually wanted to make a fight of that at the beginning. They wanted to say, you know, we think population is what ought to govern, and if Pennsylvania has ten times the population of Delaware, why should Delaware have the same clout? But Madison and the Virginians said, let's not fight at that right at the beginning. If we fight right at the beginning, the Delaware uh, delegation will just walk out. Another important decision they made was to close the doors. Uh, the state ratifying conventions were open to the public. The Pennsylvania legislature, they were sitting in Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania Constitution required open sessions. It required that laws be published in newspapers before they went into effect. 
Pennsylvania actually had the most populous constitution in the country, but ironically, they're sitting in the Pennsylvania State House and they decide to close the doors. I think that was really important because it liberated them to make more extreme, take more extreme positions than otherwise would have been safe for their political careers. But they didn't have anybody keep official minutes. Um, they do have somebody who's not a delegate who's sitting in and writing down the motions and the votes on the motions, but he's not taking notes on speeches. Individuals are free to do as they please, and Madison attended every session, and Madison decided he was going to keep as detailed a record as possible, and it's his notes that are the most valuable to subsequent historians. But there are several other people there who are keeping at least some notes. So Rufus King of Massachusetts, Robert Yates of New York, uh, they have some notes, but Madison's are the most detailed. It's not a transcript. I mean, historians have estimated that if you look at all of Madison's notes, he can't possibly have recorded more than 10% of the words that were spoken. And of course, he can't speak and take notes at the same time. So his records of his own speeches are not necessarily very accurate. He might just be inserting stuff into the record that he said or that he didn't say. There's no way to know for sure. How's it read? How's it read? Yeah. Um, Madison's a good note taker, but like anybody else, he's more interested in some things than others, and he's probably not as inclined to report accurately speeches that are criticizing his own speeches. Um, I, they speak in a somewhat stilted language. They're a lot more formal than debate would be today. But if you have some background understanding of what the issues are, you can follow pretty well the general thrust of what's being said. Um, it's a lot better than you would expect. You know, we know nothing about the ratification of the Bill of Rights. There's, for reasons I don't understand, there's just no, there was no note-taking in the legislative debates about this. The newspapers didn't cover it. Except in Virginia, we know almost nothing about what state legislatures talked about when they ratified the Bill of Rights. We're just really fortunate. We have a pretty detailed record of what went on in the Philadelphia Convention. In some state ratifying conventions, you know, in Virginia, they had a note taker. They hired a reporter. Now, both sides kind of criticized the job that he did, but he wrote down the speeches. In other state ratifying conventions, we, almost, we know almost nothing. So it's just kind of random as to, you know, what knowledge they generated that, that de descends to us. Did, did the newspapers report on the, what was going on in the Pennsylvania and the Philadelphia Convention? Well, the decision to close the doors meant there were no newspaper men there. And everybody kept their mouth shut about Well, it? they mostly kept their mouth shut. So they were supposed to not, uh, this was supposed to be confidential. There are some letters written to somebody's brother or somebody's wife, and sometimes they're a little more candid than they should be. But, you know, Madison's writing letters to Jefferson off in Paris, and he's saying, I really apologize, but I'm not allowed to tell you in any detail what's going on. There were rumors, right, as there are always rumors. So there was rumors they were going to turn to some European prince to invite them to become king. Um, I think they might have taken some steps to squelch that rumor. But for the most part, people didn't know what was going on, and that was important, you know, I said, as I said, both because it meant that the people in Philadelphia were liberated to give speeches that they otherwise wouldn't have. So Hamilton gave a speech arguing for a lifetime tenured president and a lifetime tenured Senate. And that speech came back to haunt him later in his career because there were a lot of people in Philadelphia who knew about that. And when Hamilton would, you know, become Secretary of the Treasury, they'd talk about how he was a closet monarchist who had favored a life-tenured president. But by keeping the doors shut, they disabled their opponents from getting a head start in, in organizing opposition. 
And that mattered. You know, if their opponents had had the additional four months that they were sitting in Philadelphia to start mobilizing opposition, they might have had a better chance of defeating ratification. I want to back up and get, get you to say that again so, so uh, we understand it. Alexander Hamilton believed the president should be president for life once he was elected? Yeah, and there were actually four <laughs> delegations that voted in favor of that, not four delegates, four delegations. Now, Madison's notes treat that as a bargaining ploy. Madison says they didn't really want that, but they were trying to convince people that the debate, there were a couple of debates that were combined. So who's going to pick the president? Should it be Congress? Should it be somebody else? How long should the president serve in office? And their problem was that if Congress picked the president and the president was eligible for re-election, they would have created a real difficulty that the president is now dependent on Congress for re-election, but the whole point of having a president was to check Congress. So when people were favoring a lifetime tenured Senate, some of the reason, a lifetime tenured president, some of the reason might have been that they were trying to dissuade other people from favoring Congress choosing the president. But there were a lot of them who favored very long terms in office for the president, much longer than any of us would be comfortable with today. Was the fact that this convention was going on, was that big news? I mean, did, did the general public know it, or was it just some elitist stuff in Philadelphia doing people this? People knew it. Uh, people knew about it, and the debate over the Constitution once it was issued was a national debate. It was something the world had never seen uh, world had never seen anything like this before. I mean, the country was voting on a new form of government, and ordinary people, uh, as long as they were white and male and owned some property, were participating. You say in here, because judicial review was never a focal point of their discussions, and because most of the delegates probably had given the matter little thought, the convention failed to explicitly provide for judicial review of either federal legislation or by federal courts. What did they imagine the judiciary being? Uh, judges decide lots of cases other than constitutional cases, so we assume today that the Supreme Court's main role is to strike down statutes that are unconstitutional. So somebody challenges the Affordable Care Act or somebody challenges abortion restrictions adopted by the Texas legislature. Uh, the United States didn't have judicial review before the Constitution. Uh, most Americans followed the British practice, and Britain didn't have any practice of judicial review. So judges did basically two things. They interpreted uh, laws, and they evolved a common law system. So uh, the law of contracts, the law of torts, the law of property, those were evolved through judicial decision making. And if Parliament passed a statute, the British courts interpreted that. And in the United States, states' courts would interpret state statutes. But they wouldn't strike them down. They didn't have the power to do that because legislatures were seen as sovereign. Beginning in the mid-1780s, some, some state courts began suggesting that maybe they had the power to strike down statutes that they thought violated basic constitutional principles. But it was an enormously controversial enterprise. When they dared do it, the legislatures would often call them to task and say, who do you think you are striking down the will of the sovereign legislature? So there had been just a couple of those cases, state cases. There were no general federal courts under the Articles. There had been a couple of those state cases leading up to the Philadelphia Convention. But they were so controversial that the delegates wouldn't have just assumed that federal courts would have the power to strike down laws. So they talked about this a little bit in Philadelphia, but it wasn't the focal point of discussion. The few occasions they did talk about it, more delegates expressed an opinion in favor of judicial review than against. 
but it is really striking that they would leave this out of the Constitution. So in Article Two, the president has power to veto a law of Congress. They don't leave that to inference. But in Article Three, there's nothing about courts having the authority to strike down statutes. Is what we have today what the founders intended? No. At the most, some of them would have anticipated that courts could strike down laws that obviously violated the Constitution and maybe only in cases that especially affected the judiciary. So, for example, you know, if the Constitution provides that you're going to have a right to a jury trial in a criminal case, but Congress decides to pass a statute depriving somebody of a jury trial, they might have anticipated that a court could strike that down but not if there was a question of dubious constitutionality as, a as opposed to clear unconstitutionality, and maybe not if it was a case that didn't directly involve courts in their jurisdiction, like jury trials or a statute giving courts authority over some cases and not others. The idea that courts would be reviewing every important political and social decision made by legislatures, striking down abortion laws, affirmative action laws, school prayer, political gerrymandering, recounts in presidential elections, they would never have dreamed that courts would play those, that, that sort of role. But the same thing's true about the president. They never would have contemplated an imperial president. They mostly thought the president was an enforcer of federal law, occasionally would veto law. Our president decides essentially whether we go to war in the last 50 years, and that's not what the Constitution contemplated. So there have been lots of changes in lots of different areas. What did the framers think of the idea of original intent? So there's a little bit of direct evidence on that. Um, original intent is the doctrine that courts, when they're figuring out what the Constitution means, ought not to accommodate changed circumstances, but ought to figure out what it is that the people who wrote the Constitution thought. Edmund Randolph, the governor of Virginia, was on the Committee of Detail. And when the Committee of Detail was making its report, this is a committee at the convention. Uh, they met in late July, early August, and they took all of the preceding debates and resolutions and put together a first draft of the Constitution. And Randolph explained that they didn't try to solve every question. They often used open-ended, ambiguous language because they wanted issues to be resolved by future generations because the framers didn't think they could anticipate all everything that was going to arise. So that would suggest that they weren't committed to a very rigorous form of originalism. They wanted to delegate issues to a later generation. Then we also know what Madison said later on. So as president, 25 years after the convention, Madison was confronted with the question, would he sign a bill chartering a second bank of the United States? Madison had given a famous speech in 1791 in Congress opposing the first bank as unconstitutional, but he signed the second bank bill in 1816, right before he left office, and his argument was the meaning of the Constitution can change as a result of evolving practice, and if the country's gotten used to the idea that a national bank is part of its um, apparatus, then the bank becomes constitutional, even if 25 years ago he thought it was unconstitutional. So Madison wasn't a strict originalist either. Well, besides James Madison, who were the, the pivotal people? Who were the, the stars in the whole process? James Wilson of Pennsylvania was very important, another big nationalist. He's the one who wanted the president elected directly by the people, which made him a little bit more of a populist. But he was also one of those who thought you couldn't delineate any clear demarcation between federal and state power. Basically, you just have to trust the federal government to decide for itself what it needed to do and what it didn't need to do. 
Governor Morris was also representing Pennsylvania, although he was actually more of a New Yorker. He's the one who's more responsible than anybody else for the language of the Constitution. He did, was on the Committee of Style. Did he write the preamble? Uh, he wrote the first draft of everything when he was on the Committee of Style. Uh, not, all, not all of the words of the Constitution are his, but he was thought of as a very good writer, and so he was given the task of providing the, the flourishes. Um, he also probably participated, I think he gave more speeches than anybody else in Philadelphia. So Madison, Governor Morris, James Wilson, there were a lot of other people who talked frequently. The Connecticut delegates were pretty important because they proposed some compromises. So Roger Sherman, Oliver Ellsworth, some of the New Jersey delegates, William Patterson, who became a justice on the Supreme Court under President Washington. He was a significant delegate. George Mason of Virginia was another big player. Of the 55 people who attended parts of the convention, probably only about half of them ever spoke. George Washington only made one substantive contribution pretty much the last day of the convention. Otherwise, he just presided over the convention. Rufus King of Massachusetts was another important nationalist voice at the convention. Were there any people at the convention who were delegates to the convention who were flat out against the Constitution? There were, and a couple of them just left. So the New York delegation consisted of three people. One is uh, Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton was the most nationalist and the most anti-populist person in Philadelphia. But the other two New Yorkers, Robert Yates and John Lansing, actually opposed very much the trend in the convention, and they ended up walking out in early July, and that deprived New York of its vote because under the rules, you had to have two delegates for a state's vote to count. And once they left, Alexander Hamilton also left because there was no point to being there. He came back later because he wanted to be present for the last debates and he wanted to be there to sign it. Luther Martin of Maryland, a guy named Mercer of Maryland, they also walked out. Uh, they would have been resistors of the dominant nationalizing and anti-populist strains, but they thought the convention was illegitimately ignoring its instructions, and they decided they would walk away to try to delegitimize it. But in the process, they probably just enabled their opponents to go even further in the direction that they wanted to. How long did it, long did it take you to write this? So it's always hard to answer that question. Um, I've been teaching constitutional history for 30 years. Where? Uh, I taught at the University of Virginia for 20 years, and I've been at Harvard for the last eight or nine years. Um, when I teach constitutional history, I do it in two different halves. The first half is the founding to the Civil War, and I would start with two or three weeks on the Constitutional Convention, ratification, the Bill of Rights. So as a function of that, over the years, I've read lots of secondary accounts. I'm familiar with, you know, Gordon Wood's work, Jack Raycove, Woody Holton. Uh, I decided to write this book about four to five years ago, and it was supposed to be a very different book. I thought I would just do a short book for a series uh, Oxford University Press does called uh, Inalienable Rights. Uh, then I got into it, and I got very interested in the primary sources. So I ended up just reading all the primary sources I could get my hands on, and there are now these documentary histories which compile everything in one place. So there are 27 volumes of the documentary history of the ratification of the Constitution, and it's not even finished yet, and each volume has 400 to 500 pages of letters, diary entries, account books, newspaper essays, and I just read everything that I could, and then I tried to tell the story through the voices of the participants. So from the time I started to the time I finished, I was working on it for about four years. But in some sense, I've been reading about the founding for 30 years. Now, it's 
630 or so pages of text and then another 200 plus pages of notes. Why are the notes important? Are they important to anybody other than academics like yourself? Uh, pro probably not. I don't think most readers would want to read the notes. It's important for me as a, as a legal historian to document what I'm saying. And I, it's important to show what you're aware of and what you're not aware of. So I want my arguments to be persuasive and I want people, if they want to argue with me, to see what I relied on and then they can go back and decide whether I've offered the best interpretations. I think law professors in general are especially obsessive about citations. We publish in law reviews and law, review, or, law reviews are edited by students and the students tend to be very insistent that you back up what you're saying. So I, 200 pages of notes is probably a lot, but I want people to be able to look at it and decide whether I've made stuff up or whether I've been faithful to the sources. Well, when you were writing it, did you have the general audience in mind or, or I, law I, students? No. I, you know, sometimes I think the audience is my next-door neighbor at Harvard Law School who teaches constitutional law, and I can tell him all these things that I think he didn't know. But I think about my students. I think about just an interested lay audience. Um, it's not technical legal argument in there. It's, you know, it's written for people who are interested in history. Uh, there are obviously people who are pretty well educated, people who have an interest in the founding, but it's not technical legal argument. Part of the point of the book is to show that this is about politics, this is about people struggling over interests, this is about people making the ordinary moves you expect in politics. So rather than just attacking the other side's arguments, you attack their characters. You uh, attack your opponents and say, where were you during the Revolutionary War? You know, George Washington was leading the troops. Where were you during the war? And people are engaged in all sorts of dirty tricks in politics. They quote their adversaries, but they leave out important parts of their argument and so forth. So it's, I think it's pretty re readable. It's not, you know, interpreting court decisions and legal jargon and so forth. How many people were involved with the Declaration of Independence or the Second, Constitu Second Continental Congress who were also involved with the Constitutional Convention? Uh, a lot of people come out of the convention. So a majority of these people in Philadelphia both would have been fighting in the Revolutionary Army and at some point they would have been representing their states in the Confederation Congress. It's a majority, I can't give you the precise number. I wouldn't be surprised if 30 or 40 of them had served, of the 55 who at some point were in Philadelphia had been in the Confederation Congress. It's important what their background was because both fighting in the Revolutionary Army and serving in the Confederation Congress were very nationalizing experiences. You were serving your country and its government, you were fighting for the founding of your country, that made people think in more national terms. And because so much of the agenda that Madison had was to push power in the federal direction, he had a very like-minded group of delegates in Philadelphia. They were receptive to what he wanted to do. Who among the delegates would you want to sit down and talk to? And what would you ask them about? <laughs> My favorites are Madison and Hamilton. I'd ask them about everything. Um, they're just fascinating people. They're brilliant. It's kind of hard to imagine people today. We've all become so specialized. They were generalists. They were self-taught. Alexander Hamilton came from the Caribbean. It's a miracle that he ended up in the United States. I mean, he was born in desperate circumstances, but people recognized his brilliance and sent him to the mainland, and he went to Columbia College. He's reading Adam Smith in his spare time. At the same time, he's trying to get an education, then he's trying to become a lawyer, but he's also reading about political economy and developing his own theories. 
um, they're just extraordinary people. I don't think that there are that many people in politics today who could really hold a candle to them. So I'd, I'd be curious to ask them, you know, you read all their letters and you have an idea about what it is they're worried about, what it is they're trying to accomplish, but it would be fascinating just to talk to them a little bit more and see what's going on in the back of their mind. What do you think that Madison or Hamilton would think about the way the U.S. turned out? So the country became vastly more populous than they would have uh, appreciated or wanted. And by that I mean we removed property restrictions for voting by the 1820s, 1830s. Ordinary Americans were playing much greater influence in government. Uh, obviously over time we got a 15th Amendment ending disfranchisement based on race. We got a 19th Amendment ending disfranchisement based on sex. We moved in the progressive era to referendum and initiative so people can play a direct role in making their own laws. The electoral college ceased to work in the way they contemplated. It became basically a popular vote for president. They wouldn't have anticipated any of that and they wouldn't have immediately liked it, but it would be fascinating to talk to them, explain to them the changes in society, and then ask them, well, given all these changes that you wouldn't have contemplated, would you still have held on to your views that the people shouldn't be directly participating in governance, or might your views have evolved if I told you how much better educated people are going to be, if I told you that 90% of the country isn't going to be farming anymore, if I told you we're going to have compulsory public education, would that affect your views about these things? And who knows what the answer is? I mean, people are always looking at the founding and saying, what would the framers think about X today? What would they think about states regulating abortion clinics? And the answer is, if you took the framers and brought them into the present, they'd probably be just like us, meaning we, they disagree about things. Jefferson, uh, Thomas Jefferson played no role in the Constitutional Convention. Jefferson's in Paris from about 1784 to 1789. <laughs> if he'd been in the United States, he certainly would have been chosen as a delegate. We don't know that he would have gone. So Patrick Henry was the second most prominent Virginian after Washington. He was chosen as a delegate. He didn't go. And then he became a leading opponent of ratification. Uh, Jefferson is being kept a prize. So Madison writes him letters. Madison sends him the Constitution. We know what Jefferson thinks about the Constitution. We know what he believes the country ought to do. At one point he says nine states should ratify. Then the last four states should hold out for amendments. There's some things he doesn't like about the Constitution. He thinks there should be a Bill of Rights and there isn't. He thinks the president should not be subject to um, re-election forever. Maybe you should limit him to two terms. Jefferson, in his later political career, seems like he would have been an anti-federalist, that he would have opposed ratification. That's not quite what he said in his letters to Madison, but pretty, pretty quickly in the 1790s, he turns against the administration, especially against what Hamilton's doing as Secretary of the Treasury, and that puts Jefferson in the company of a lot of people who had opposed the Constitution in 1787-88. Did Benjamin Franklin play any kind of role in the he convention? He did. Franklin is the senior delegate from Pennsylvania. He's quite old. He's about 81, and he's already pretty feeble, so he can't even give some of his own speeches. James Wilson is reading speeches that Franklin um, has, has written out. On a couple of issues, Franklin does make substantive interventions. So uh, he believes you should remove property qualifications. He wants ordinary farmers to have the ability to vote. He also, at one point when the convention is at risk of falling apart, he suggests that they ought to begin every day's session with a prayer. Uh, it's, tr it's 
it's going to fall apart over the issue of small states and large states fighting over how to be represented in the Senate. And, Hamil and Franklin says, you know, we, we need some help here, so let's start beseeching God in our prayers. And none of the other delegates think that's a great idea. Uh, Hamilton basically says, but they all have tremendous respect for Franklin, so they don't want to disagree with him. Hamilton says that would have been a good idea if we'd done it from day one, but if word gets out that we're calling in a minister, it's going to look like we're desperate and things are falling apart, so we better not do it. And then rather than vote down the suggestion, they just talk it into oblivion. So they have great respect for Franklin, but I wouldn't say he's a major player at the convention. He's an occasional participant. But the fact that he was there and that Washington was there lends incredible legitimacy. Those are the two most famous, most well-respected, most beloved framers, uh, members of the founding generation. And the fact that they're there in Philadelphia does confer important legitimacy on the enterprise. What was the low point in the whole process when, when it seemed like it might just break up and everybody head home? They spent about a week, uh, about a month to six weeks debating how to apportion the Senate. So they were willing to, they created a, a, a two-branch legislature, which you didn't have under the Articles, and the state of Pennsylvania didn't have. Pennsylvania only had a unicameral legislature. And you mentioned that Benjamin Franklin was in favor of a unicameral. He was. Fran so Franklin had, had helped write in the Pennsylvania Constitution, and he believed that the people ought to have a lot of control over the government. So he didn't want an upper house to check the lower house, and the Pennsylvania Constitution had a really weak executive, no veto power. Uh, they, they wanted to put all the power into the chamber that most people were voting for. Um, so they were fighting over how to apportion the Senate. They agreed that the House would be according to population. The small states were insisting that you had to have equal voting in the Senate or else they were going to walk out. So their threats by New Jersey and Delaware, we, we want to insist that we have at least equal power in one branch because today we have equal power in the Articles of Confederation in Congress and you're now taking that away and the small states will just be destroyed by the large states. The large states, mostly Virginia, uh, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania, their position is, well, this is a democracy, this is a republic, and people ought to control the government, and why in the world would you give more power to, you know, why would you give Delaware, with one-twelfth the population of Virginia, the same equal vote in the Senate? So the large states are insisting on apportionment based on population, and the small states are saying, we're walking out without equality in the Senate, and they fought over that for weeks and weeks, and they couldn't agree, and finally they appointed a committee, and they the threat by the small states proved at the end of the day to, to secure them what they were looking for. Did they ever debate slavery or did they sort of dance around it? Uh, slavery was a big part of the debates at the convention, but you have to focus on exactly how they debated it. There was nobody in Philadelphia who was arguing that the Constitution ought to end slavery. There was nobody arguing in Philadelphia that Congress ought to be empowered to end slavery. The question was how much would southern slaves count in terms of apportioning representation in Congress. And then there were a bunch of commercial issues that related to slavery, and they fought quite long and uh, quite vehemently over those issues. So South Carolinians, who were the ones most dependent on slavery, about half of South Carolina was enslaved. 
they thought that their slaves ought to count equally in apportioning power in the house. Some northerners, like Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, said slaves ought not to count at all. If southerners treat them as property and our property in the north doesn't count, why should your property in the south count? They agreed on a three-fifths compromise, which I think probably they knew coming in there would be some sort of compromise so that the South's wealth in slaves would count for something, but not as much as the South wanted. Then there were deals over these other commercial issues. So most Southerners who were, who were farmers were producing agricultural exports, mostly at that point rice, indigo, tobacco. Because they're agricultural exporters, they actually favor free trade and they favor lots of competition in the carrying trade because people, they, the Southerners don't produce seamen and they don't produce ships. So somebody has to carry their tobacco to Europe and they would prefer that there be competition to reduce the freight rates. Their worry is if you give Congress power over commerce, which there did not exist under the Articles, that Northerners, there are eight Northern states, five Southern states, Northerners will dominate Congress. They'll pass legislation giving a monopoly to Northern shippers, and suddenly Southern agricultural producers are going to pay half their profit to these monopolistic Northern carriers. So they want to insist that there be a supermajority requirement to pass commercial legislation. They're also worried about importing slaves. So Georgia and South Carolina have lost tens of thousands of their slaves during the Revolutionary War. Slaves have gone off to the British who promised them freedom if they, if they deserted the American side. They want to continue importing slaves, but a lot of other states don't want that. They want the, the slave importations to end, including upper south states like Virginia and Maryland, who already have enough slaves and are selling them profitably to the deep south. They'd rather cut off competition from the foreign slave trade. So there are debates about the foreign slave trade, there are debates about the commerce power, there are debates about export taxes. So Southerners are mainly exporters. They're worried that Congress will pass export taxes, which will end up only affecting Southern agricultural producers. So that, they take that ball of issues and they make various compromises over those. Well, knowing what you know now, looking back on the debate over the Constitution, you think the Civil War was inevitable? I don't think there's anything they could have done in Philadelphia that would have averted the development of two different civilizations, one increasingly dependent on slavery and the other increasingly turning against slavery. So it's important to remember there were still lots of slaves in the North in the 1780s. New York and New Jersey hadn't even taken steps to eliminate slavery. Pennsylvania was the first, as you know, was the first state in 1780. It passed a gradual emancipation law, but that didn't actually free anybody who was already alive as a slave. So Pennsylvania still had some slaves 50 years later, but New York and New Jersey had resisted efforts at gradual emancipation. So what happened is the Revolutionary War, economic changes put slavery on the road to extinction in the North. The North developed a very different sort of economic system, a very different social system. The two parts diverged further and further, and at some point I think it was inevitable that they were going to split up, or at least that there would be an effort to split up. I don't know what the framers could have done that would have headed that off. And they weren't inclined to because the differences weren't that great. With New York still had an 8% slave population. That wasn't, you know, New York had as many sl slaves as Georgia almost at the time. So you couldn't have forecast what would happen. And lots of Virginians and Marylanders hoped that slavery would end. They thought it was a temporary phenomenon. They thought we're going to put it on the road to extinction. 
you really couldn't have forecast 80 years later what the country would look like. What do you think the framers got flat out wrong? Uh, they clearly got wrong the electoral college system, so they just made a mistake. They required each elector to cast two votes, but they didn't require that one be designated for president and the other for vice president. They weren't contemplating the existence of political parties, but once you had political parties, which developed pretty quickly, political parties were going to run slates of candidates. So electors for the Jeffersonian Republican Party were going to cast two votes, one for Jefferson, one for Burr. That was clearly understood that Jefferson would be president and Burr would be vice president, but they didn't say anything in the Constitution about designating the two electors' votes. So Jefferson and Burr end up tied, and if you have nobody with a majority, the vote goes into the House where the votes are done by delegation, and that actually meant that the opposition party was going to have a lot of influence over whether Jefferson or Burr became president. And that was crazy because everybody understood that it was supposed to be Jefferson. So they just made a mistake there. That was a, that was a problem. They, they also shouldn't have provided that the president has to be a natural-born citizen. There's no reason why somebody who comes to the United States at the age of one spends their entire life in the United States is any less loyal to the republic. That's just discrimination against uh, people who are naturalized citizens. Did that eliminate Hamilton as a potential president? So they made an they... exception for the people who were alive at the time. They were grandfathered in. Right, exactly. So it only applies uh, prospectively. And it wasn't just Hamilton. There were a bunch of them. James Wilson was from Scotland. Uh, one of the South Carolinians had been born in Northern Ireland. Uh, their, their concern was that at the end of the day, the president could be seduced by bribery, that a foreign nation would give the president a pot of gold to sell out the country's interests. But the idea that being natural born as opposed to naturalized at the age of one would make a difference, that's just a discriminatory provision. They shouldn't have done that. Was there a big official ceremony? Okay, we're done, everybody. Here, sign on the dotted line and everybody head home. They had a small ceremony. They adjourned and they did some drinking afterwards. The bigger celebrations were after ratification. So you had tremendous ceremonies in Philadelphia half the state population showed up at a July 4th celebration in 1788 in Boston, in New York, in Baltimore, thousands of people at a time, you know, the largest city in the country was Philadelphia with 30 or 35,000 people. Enormous demonstrations. You'd never seen anything like that in the history of the country. That was celebrating particular states' ratifications. And then in Pennsylvania, they were celebrating the ratification by the requisite number of nine states. That was a big deal. So ratification was done by the state legislatures, not by popular vote. So it, the Constitution provides that it's done by special ratifying conventions. So the letter transmitted with the Constitution says that we want this Constitution, and Article 7 says this as well, we want the Constitution to go to Congress, which should send it to state legislatures, which we then uh, respectfully request. We'll call special ratifying conventions where the people will elect the delegates. So it's done by state ratifying conventions. And you say in here, you talk about uh, the, the Pennsylvania ratification convention, and you say Federalist legislators insisted on an immediate call for ratifying the convention, even though copies of the Constitution had not yet circulated throughout the state's western counties. What was the rush? Uh, the rush was that the state legislature was ending the session. The Federalists knew they had a majority. They worried that with the intervening state elections, if they waited until the next uh, election of state legislators, they might lose their majority, and they wanted to take advantage of this opportunity. 
they actually had to go and forcibly round up some of the anti-federalist delegates in the legislature who absented themselves in order to form a quorum. They sent the marshal and a, a mob accompanied the marshal and they literally picked up a couple of the anti-federalists from some inn and deposited them back in the legislature to create a quorum. This created a fair amount of uh, a fair amount of criticism around the country that they were using these extraordinary uh, techniques to gather gather the requisite quorum. There's a lot to talk about. Before we run out of time, I want to ask you about one person who you write about in your book, Mercy Warren Otis, or Mercy Otis Warren. Otis Warren. Yeah. Mercy Otis Warren. Who was she, and why was she significant, and how did? a woman managed to be a significant force in politics at that point. She was an important pamphleteer uh, during the revolution and then she was a very important pamphleteer in the ratifying contest. She was a brilliant woman. Uh, she was well educated and she had political opinions and her spouse uh, James Warren was a leading uh, politician in Massachusetts. This was all done pseudonymously or anonymously. So well, they didn't know she was a woman? No, they didn't know she was a woman. They would not have uh, accepted easily the idea of a woman participating in political debate. So she wrote a pamphlet. Uh, I guess I think she wrote under the pseudonym uh, Columbian uh, Patriot. But they mostly wrote, wrote under pseudonyms. Uh, the Federalist Papers are written by Madison, uh, Hamilton, and John Jay. They wrote under the pseudonym Publius. Uh, somebody in an important anti-federalist in New York is writing under the pseudonym Brutus. They mostly run under, under pseudonyms. So she wrote one of the most widely circulated and right, widely cited anti-federalist pamphlets. She was an opponent of ratification. There was a great deal of opposition in Massachusetts. They barely got it approved by the ratifying convention. Uh, she was a significant player in the debate, but it was done without anybody being aware she was a woman. Was the split between Federalists and Anti-Federalists along regional lines or along rich versus poor or along farmers versus merchants? Where was the, Who fell into which camp? So there is a class aspect to it, but it's not simply that because in cities, people tend to support the Constitution across class lines. Uh, one division is east versus west. The further toward the Atlantic seaboard people live, the more likely they support the Constitution. Some of it is urban versus rural, but it's important to keep in mind that 90% of Americans lived outside of cities. So when we say urban, the 10% who lived in cities were overwhelmingly supportive. So for example, in New York City, when they voted on delegates for the New York ratifying convention, 19 out of every 20 votes cast was in favor of a Federalist, of somebody who would support ratification. And Philadelphia was the same thing. Uh, one of the forks of the Susquehanna River, I can never remember which one, neatly divided Federalists from Anti-Federalists. So in western Pennsylvania, there was overwhelming opposition to ratification. Uh, another variable tended to be how much you were tied into a commercial network. So if you were the sort of farmers who supplied cities, you were more likely to be supportive. Uh, but, you know, Western frontiersmen generally opposed ratification. Some of it was they didn't trust Easterners. Easterners lorded it over them. They thought they were better. They thought they were better educated. They tried to impose taxes that would be disproportionately borne by Westerners. A lot of it was East-West. There were some religious differences. So in states like Virginia, Massachusetts, Baptists, who were not part of the establishment, they were a dissident Protestant sect, they tended to oppose ratification. Uh, there's an elite, non-elite component everywhere but Virginia. The lawyers and doctors and clergymen, bankers, large merchants, they were strongly in favor of the Constitution. 
people who were less elite tended to oppose the Constitution. Well, was there a, a huge buzz over this among the public? I mean, if you went down to the local pub with the local tavern, would you find people talking about it? Absolutely. So the newspapers ended up in taverns. A lot of people who didn't subscribe to the newspaper would go read it in taverns. They talked about it on stagecoaches. They talked about it in inns. They argued about it within families. Fathers disagreed with their sons. Uh, brothers disagreed with one another about ratification. It was a national debate in a way that the country had never seen before. How much of a near thing was its passing? Incredibly near. So it's hard for us to remember because the Constitution seems so fundamentally constitutive of our identity, it's hard to think about the Constitution failing. But it was a very closely fought contest. It easily could have come out the other way. So for example, North Carolina and Rhode Island both rejected the Constitution initially. New Hampshire probably would have rejected it, but Federalists deftly adjourned the convention before they had a chance to vote. In three of the largest states, which were critical to the successful formation of the Union, Virginia, New York, and Massachusetts, they voted in favor barely. So New York was 30 to 27, Virginia was 89 to 79, Massachusetts was 187 to 168. Any of those states could have come out differently, which means just a handful of changes in circumstance, in luck, in mistakes made by the opposition, and they would have rejected the Constitution. And the country might have fallen apart. Some people thought it was on the verge of falling apart. Were these states uh, voting on approval or not approval of the Constitution before or after the Bill of Rights was written up? There was no Bill of Rights originally. Uh, the anti-federalists, the opponents of ratification, made that their principal criticism, that there's no freedom of religion, there's no freedom of the press, there's no right to a jury trial in civil cases, there's no protection against cruel and unusual punishment. You got a Bill of Rights because uh, Massachusetts was the sixth state to ratify. It was very closely divided, and the Federalists knew they were going to lose unless they offered something in exchange. So they said to the Anti-Federalists, approve the Constitution. We promise that we will recommend amendments that will be proposed by the first Congress. Was it conditional? Was it required that it they... wasn't conditional. Oh, it wasn't. And that's a lot of the fight was over whether it should be conditional or not. So after Massachusetts ratified, but also recommended amendments. Every state but one going forward also recommended amendments, but the fight at those conventions was over whether the amendments should be an antecedent condition of ratification or whether it was good enough just to ratify with a promise of amendments. And the Federalists desperately headed off any conditions. They wanted the Constitution ratified, and then they would later talk about amendments. And the only reason you got amendments is because James Madison made a promise to his constituents when he ran for a seat in the first Congress. He said, I promise you, I will work for the amendments that the Virginia Ratifying Convention has proposed. And Madison delivered on his promise, even though there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm, either from his side of the aisle or the opposite side of the aisle, for the specific amendments he had in mind. But Madison persisted, and that's why there's a Bill of Rights. Madison was important to this whole story, but he was absolutely essential to the Bill of Rights. Well, I wish we had more time to talk about it, but we are out of time, unfortunately. This is the cover of the book we've been talking about, The Framers' Coup, and we've been speaking with Michael Klarman. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.